1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. This is the New International Version. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of God. Thank you for that reading. All right, would you uh, uh, pray with me? Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you for uh, this time where we can hear from you. And uh, we know that as we, um, you know, as I preach the sermon, uh, as we hear um, what is preached, you know, there is a sense in which uh, uh, I guess something human is going on. the words that I speak are, are coming from my mind and um, the words that we hear, uh, we're, we're hearing with our ears and using our intellect and those kind of things. Uh, but God, we know that this time's also not limited uh, to just that. And there is something spiritual happening here as well. And the Sp- Holy Spirit is at work and uh, the Holy Spirit uh, wants to reveal um, your very word to us uh, with great power and with great conviction. And so we pray that as we hear um, about the great work of Christ, about his resurrection, of this great gospel, this good news that uh, we proclaim uh, and we profess, uh, we do pray, God, that you would give us great conviction um, because we certainly need it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (coughs) Hey, my sermon's here. (laughs) You know, uh, I, I don't know if you remember last week, I didn't have my sermon notes. And, you know, it, it really bothered me. Like, why do I, is my sermon not on my computer? So I, I thought about it, and I tried to figure out what rent went wrong. I figured it out. So uh, I wrote my sermon on my other computer, which is a Mac. And do you remember the sermon last week? It was like when Mary Magdalene encountered the resurrected Jesus, and Jesus says, why are you weeping? So I named the file, why are you weeping, with a question mark. And this here, this is a Windows. Apparently, Windows can't take that question mark in the file. So (laughs) when it was trying to sync, uh, the question mark caused a problem. And there's this incompatibility between these uh, two operating systems. So at the end of the day, this question mark uh, told me that these two systems were not compatible and were not in sync. And I actually thought that was a great and appropriate illustration for our lives because, you know, I think sometimes uh, the questions that we ask and the questions of our lives can reveal something that is not in sync with, you know, the way we operate and the way God operates. Uh, When we confront certain kinds of questions that are, I think, difficult to ask and difficult to think about, 
not only do we get closer to the truth, but I think it does tell us whether we are actually on the same page in terms of God's promises and God's values and God's plans for our lives. And without these questions, we, we tend to continue to operate according to our, our system, and we can end up missing those, uh, I, I guess to keep the illustration going, right? we miss those important files because we're not in sync. Files like uh, hope and joy and security. Now, what are some of those important questions? Well, I think they're the ones that we don't really like to think about. They're the ones that make us uncomfortable, and they're the ones that have to do with death and mortality and loss. Questions like, do you know that death is in your future? Uh, do you know that uh, not just your death, but the death of your loved ones are in your future? Questions like, well, wha what's going to happen after we die? Uh, will I ever see any of my loved ones again after they die? And I think these seem like silly questions when you aren't really thinking about death and mortality and you're kind of going on with the, the normal rhythms of life. But I found myself thinking about these very questions at the last funeral I attended, which was when my aunt passed away. And I tell you, in that setting, they don't seem very silly at all. Uh, we know that our futures are inevitably going to be filled with loss and hardship as we get older, uh, but we don't really let that reality um, touch upon our imaginations because I think it's too uncomfortable and too scary to think about. And of course, that's un understandable. But I do think we need to take moments to think about the reality of death because uh, we need something else to invade our imaginations in addition to our mortality, and that is hope. We need God's hope to invade our imaginations. And I think we're afraid of the pain of death because, of course, it is painful. But I also think when we imagine these losses or this potential grief that will inevitably come to us one day, um, Sometimes we don't imagine those moments thinking about the hope of the reality of the resurrection, the hope that can actually not necessarily take away our grief, but maybe transform our grief. Because here's the thing, uh, for the Christian believer, death is painful, but death isn't the final word. Uh, Jesus has the final word, and therefore his hope gives us the final word. Many of us, uh, are reaching an age <coughs> where I think things are starting to tip. And here's what I mean. Uh, I think in our 20s and 30s, uh, we were probably a little bit more optimistic about life. Uh, you know, life was still ahead of us. Um, you know, maybe we attended a few funerals here and there, but uh, it wasn't... Um, it didn't seem like it's going to be like as, as much as maybe I imagine our futures are going to be. You're still gaining. You're still building towards something. And so it's very natural to have this positive outlook on life. And it's, <coughs> you know, the world is kind of like your oyster and all you see are potential opportunities. And maybe for some people that continues into their 40s and 50s, but I think for a lot of people, those opportunities start to shrink. You start to feel stuck in life because you have all these responsibilities. Uh, maybe in your work, you've reached the ceiling at your job, and therefore it's kind of harder to, to move to different jobs and different careers. Or maybe, <coughs> you know, after all these years, you kind of realize, I don't really like what I do, and I want to switch and do something else. But then the switch at this point in life is like very difficult. 
not only that, I think we start to feel our mortality a little bit more. You know, <clears throat> our doctors are, are now starting to tell us, hey, you know, I told you exercise was good before, but you, you really <laughs> need to start exercising now, right? Look at your blood pressure. Look at your cholesterol levels. They're getting a little bit too high. Um, you know, our, our parents and friends' parents are starting to decline in health, and some have even already passed away. And I think about it, of course, with, with my parents. And I was just talking to my parents this week. You know, they're telling me about some of their health issues that they're, deal that they're dealing with. And, you know, some of it, it's, it's getting worse, and there's no resolution. And so, uh, of course, it makes me sad to think about uh, losing them and think about their mortality. And I don't know about you, but at least, you know, for me, uh, the world and life doesn't look as rosy as it used to be. And I just kind of look into my future and I see a lot more frustration, a lot more pain. But that's why I think it's important to ask some poignant questions to ourselves because we need to make sure in view of these things, we really do have to make sure that our hope is in sync with the very kind of hope that God's promises give to us. Because too often, it's very easy to draw hope from the wrong sources, right? And when we draw hope from the wrong sources, we, it turns out that hope becomes something very fragile and hope turns out to be something that crumbles very easily. When you don't have hope, it's hard to endure in life. When you don't have hope, it's hard to um, have joy and a sense of security. You know, I was thinking about this question uh, just randomly and I was thinking about, you know, is it harder to be a Christian when we are younger or is it hard to be a, harder to be a Christian when we're older in age? And I don't know if there's an answer to that, but I was thinking about it because life does seem to get more difficult as we get older. And I don't know if any of you are kind of going through this like stage of maybe like midlife crisis kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, there's more to worry about and there's more loss and more death. And, you know, some of us are reaching the age where like, you know, we have to start taking care of our parents and yet we still have young kids and we're kind of like in that, right? Uh, we just got to take care of a lot of people and there's a lot of responsibility. And uh, I just, you know, I think about it and the potential of these kinds of experiences, like what can it do to our faith? And I think it does one of two things. I don't think it leaves our faith um, the same, but I do think it has the potential to either shake our faith or maybe, at, maybe leave us kind of apathetic with respect to our faith or it gives us the opportunity to really be strengthened Okay, if we want to endure and not allow the hardships of life to shake our faith, I think hope becomes very important. We are accessing the right kind of hope, the kind of hope that endures, the kind of hope that even loss and death cannot take away. Uh, I was preparing this sermon. I was like, oh boy, this is going to be like an intense Sunday, right? A somber topic. But it's not, going, it's not supposed to be a discouraging one. Yeah, it's like a reality check, but I don't think this is supposed to be a discouraging message. You know, sometimes the best things in life come across some of the worst things in life, and I think the hope of the resurrection is one of those things. It's the best thing that we can have access to, but sometimes it does require us to ponder some of the worst things in life to realize how good that hope is. And I think that's why this passage, it actually ends on a note of encouragement because Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So even as he is talking to them about death, about the future, uh, about the resurrection, he wants them to understand that these are things that will ultimately encourage them, not discourage them. B 
these are, uh, this is a community and they're discouraged and they're a little bit confused in terms of, you know, what happens to their loved ones after they died. And Paul wants them to know what they should expect in view of the resurrection and what's going to happen to those who have, what he says, fallen asleep. And for Paul, engaging the, in the reality of death ultimately leads to encouragement because what it does is it also leads us to consider this glorious future that God has promised to us in view of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so let's take a look and see what words Paul has here that he wants to encourage us with. You know, Paul tells us that Christian grief is different because he says, we do not grieve as others who have no hope. Uh, The last time I heard, again, I heard a sermon on this particular passage was actually at my aunt's funeral. And, you know, the minister was sharing uh, a story about his own father and his own loss. And after his mother had died, uh, I guess he was in his father's, house or something but uh, he just heard this like really strange noise and at first he thought it was an animal because it sounded like a howling and so he kind of moved towards that noise and as he got closer and closer he realized that really strange noise was coming from his father and his father was so devastated by the loss of uh, his wife that he was like howling and weeping and weeping and he never saw his father so distraught like that and I don't know if you're into Shakespeare uh, I'm not a huge fan, but there's cer- certain stanzas that uh, I think are pretty eloquent. And this comes from King Lear, but Shakespeare says, Howl, 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 O you men of stones. Had I your tongues and eyes, I'd use them so that heaven's vault should crack. She's gone forever. I know when one is dead and when one lives, she's dead as earth. And, uh, you know, mourning the death of the daughter and howl, howl, howl right? The loss of a loved one, I think it can bring this kind of grief that produces, uh, that leads to something like primal about us, right? Where we kind of shed our, uh, our sense of like dignity. And in that moment of grief, it just kind of like the raw emotion and pain just comes out. And this is what uh, the minister who officiated my aunt's funeral was sharing. And he was sharing that story because he said, you know, his dad was a pastor. And I guess up until that point, he kind of thought, you know, oh, Christians shouldn't be too sad when people pass away because we believe in the resurrection. Uh, but he, he was encouraging uh, those who were at the funeral, saying, like, no, no, it's, it's okay to grieve, right? Grieve is a part of uh, living in this world. Grief is a part of loss. And Paul is not saying that Christians are not supposed to grieve, and belief in the resurrection doesn't eliminate our grief. But what Paul is saying is the nature of that grief is very different, The resurrection transforms our grief because now we can grieve with hope. You know, grief is one of those universal experiences because loss is a universal experience and all people have to find a way to deal with some of these experiences. And, uh, you know, there's this, I guess it's a famous book, but this guy named Ernest Becker, he wrote a book called The Denial of Death. And he's not writing from a Christian perspective. He's actually writing from a secular perspective. And I think he's critiquing, uh, part of it is a critique of the secular perspective. But he argues that one of the basic motivations for human behavior is this need to control this basic anxiety uh, by denying what he says is the terror of death. And he says the way that societies do that is they construct these hero systems that make us believe we can transcend death as long as we participate in something that has lasting worth. And so whether it's like building an empire, whether it's writing a book, whether it's establishing a family, whether it's accumulating wealth, uh, whether like all of these human endeavors, 
he says the reason why they are so important and so meaningful to us is because they are, I guess, subconsciously a way that we deny our eventual mortality. And I don't know if you buy that argument, but I find it compelling. But anyway, uh, he has like this whole argument, right, about uh, how, how society engages with like our mortality and things like that. But what was more interesting to me, you know, I read the foreword of the book, and I found the foreword to be very interesting because it was written by this journalist who had visited Ernst Becker when he had terminal cancer, and he's about to die. And for someone who has written about death, Becker himself, you know, there's a lot of pressure on him because now he says this is an opportunity to show how one dies. And this, he says whether one does it in a dignified, manly way, what kind of thoughts one surrounds it with, and how one accepts his death death. And so Becker with terminal cancer is facing death and he's probably thinking, I wrote this book on death and uh, I, I really got to die well, right? <laughs> now, uh, Becker, he's not writing from a Christian perspective. So when he talks about dying in a dignified way and accepting death, uh, I think he probably believes that's the best one can do. When I read that, I thought that was a little silly. Uh, I don't know if dying is supposed to be dignified and I don't know if it's something that we are necessarily supposed to uh, accept as if it's like natural. Um, I've read uh, a number of books by Christians uh, who are reflecting on their own experiences with grief. Uh, this Puritan Richard Baxter wrote about losing his wife, Margaret. C.S. Lewis wrote about losing his wife in A Grief Observed. There's a theologian named Nicholas Wolterstorff, and he wrote about losing his son in a climbing accident. Uh, there's an author named Nancy Guthrie who wrote about losing two of her babies. In all of these books about grief, none of them talked about the dignity of death or just accepting it as if it's like a natural thing. Uh, rather, what they did was they talk about their grief, they talk about their tears, they talk about their frustrations, they even talk about their sin. And in a strange way, I actually think their faith gave them the freedom to be very honest about their grief because their hope wasn't in their ability to process their grief, nor was it, I would even say, was it in their belief in how to process grief, but ultimately their hope was in a person who not only welcomes the lament of grieving people, but also gives them a reason to hope. And so some authors would say, you know, in, you know I was so angry and in my grief, I brought it to the Lord and uh, I knew he could take it, right? And it's only when we have that sense of who God is and his power and his strength, that we can actually have the freedom to be honest with our grief. But on the flip side, we also have a God who gives us reason to hope. And what is that hope? Paul explains it in the next verse when he says this, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, or another way to translate it, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, what Paul is saying here is like, those who have died, He's saying this to the Thessalonians. Those, of, those who have died, they are going to follow the same pattern of Jesus and be raised again as Jesus was because Jesus is the first fruits, as Paul would say in other places like 1 Corinthians 15. And that's why Paul, he can classify those who are dead, not as dead, but he calls them uh, as people who have fallen asleep. 
uh, the community. They're not sure how they ought to relate to the dead. And they're afraid that those who died would not be able to experience the glories of Christ when he returns because they, they thought Jesus was going to return very soon. And it's like, oh, no, uh, what if, like, you know, people died before Jesus returns? What's going to happen to those people? And that's one of the misunderstandings that this community has and Paul seems to be addressing in this passage. And what Paul does is he uses this euphemism to describe those who have died, and he says they are sleeping. I imagine when he uses uh, that metaphor that they are sleeping, uh, you know, it was, by the way, a common metaphor in the ancient world because uh, those who are, are sleeping, they can look dead. They can look similar to dead people in terms of their outside. Their eyes are closed and they aren't moving, but the difference is between somebody who's sleeping and somebody who's dead is you expect the person who is sleeping to eventually wake up, right, to get up. And that's what Paul is saying about what the resurrection does. Even though some of your loved ones in the community of believers have died, it's more like they're asleep, because one day what you can expect to happen is Jesus is going to return and he is going to raise them to life again. But it's not just that the dead will wake up and be raised to life, but it's also that the resurrection will raise them to a life that is significantly better than the one that they had lived and the one that we live in this age. Uh, Verse 17, it's this like strange verse and And I had to read through a couple commentaries to kind of understand what it was saying. But this is what verse 17 says. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And it's like the strange picture that Paul is uh, using when he talks about how those who are alive will be caught together with Jesus in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And, uh, you know, some people have taken that to be uh, literal, which is why I think some people have this picture like when Jesus returns we're going to kind of be a bunch of floating people in the air going to heaven but I think Paul is actually just using figurative language uh, and this figurative language is, is telling us something that's very incredible you see when he says we're going to meet the Lord in the air uh, that Greek verb to meet it's not easy to translate into English and it's uh, you know it's not like we're meeting with the Lord as we would meet up with a friend or something like that but there's other layers of meaning here it's the same verb that Uh, people would use to describe a king when a king would enter a city after victory and all the dignitaries of the city would kind of go out and meet this victorious king and then those dignitaries would now walk back into the city with the victorious king. And so when Paul is saying we are going to meet the Lord, what he's basically saying is this, that we are going to meet Jesus at the point that separates uh, this world from the world to come, the earthly realm from the heavenly realm. And what Jesus is going to do at the resurrection is, as our victorious king, he's going to now bring us into this heavenly city so that we can dwell with him in eternal fellowship. And our bodies, the ones that uh, decay, the ones that die, the resurrection says we will receive new resurrected bodies and we will be transformed from this old creation full of frustration, full of pain, full of death. We will now be transformed into something much more glorious, something imperishable, something that is amazing and wonderful. There's a famous line from the English priest and poet George Herbert and he Uh, You've probably heard it before, but he once said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. And others have taken that and said, you know, when we bury the dead at funerals, the Christian dead, uh, we're not burying them and saying goodbye to them forever, but in a sense, we're planting them. Why? Because the resurrection means that 
they will be raised into something new with far greater glory than the bodies uh, and the world that we inhabit today. And in view of this, Paul is saying, encourage one another with these words. Now, these words are certainly encouraging uh, at a funeral when we're saying goodbye to a loved one. Uh, just being reminded of that in that kind of like context, it, it is super very encouraging and it does provide comfort. And uh, as I said, when I heard some of these words at the last funeral I attended, they were a great source of comfort. But I also want to reflect on why the resurrection is important for us, even when we're not at a funeral. Uh, I think Ernest Becker was onto something when he argues that a lot of our human mot motivations are rooted in desire to avoid our own sense of mortality, uh, to deny the terror of death. And these days, I've been having a lot of conversations with people about, you know, things that we're kind of going through in life. And I don't know if you call it a midlife crisis, but it kind of feels like a midlife crisis and how we feel stuck in life and how we thought by a certain age uh, we would have, like, uh, been somewhere else or we would have found our niche or we would have been doing what we are meant to be doing in in our life and I'm having you know a lot of these kinds of conversations because hey guess what I'm going through the same thing right <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm about to uh, turn 40 soon and uh, I think you know it's just a number uh, and I know it's a number to some people but uh, for me I, you know, I always looked at my 20s and 30s as kind of being, these are the decades where you kind of figure things out and where you grow as a person. Uh, but in the back of my mind, I always thought, you know, but I want my 40s and 50s to be my most fruitful decades in my life. And that's when I want to, like, find my niche and, like, what I'm good at. And I, that's how uh, I want to do something where I feel like I'm going to leave my mark on this world. And I'm about to turn 40. I have no idea <laughs> what I should be doing, right? And it's incredibly frustrating. And I was, you know, I was sharing some people just to, to be honest, you know, I want to I experience success in life. I want to be successful in something uh, because I don't feel very successful in the things that I'm doing. And I have like all this pressure upon me, all this internal pressure, all this angst, all this frustration, and I feel like my time is running out. Now, if Becker is right, uh, then at least part of that pressure is coming from maybe this desire to avoid confronting my own sense of mortality. Uh, if this world is all there is, then the way to kind of feel better about my mortality, to transcend the terror of death, is maybe to make my life as meaningful and important as I can in this world. Uh, it means I need to maybe extract as much fun and excitement as I can from this world, or I need to build something that will last in this world it means I need my, my name and the memories that people have of me to be very important, significant, and meaningful. But what if this world is not all there is? What if my transformation into something better and lasting has very little to do with my accomplishments in this world? What if everything I'm seeking is actually all based on the grace of God and something that God gives to me through the work of Jesus Christ? What if the life that I long to live is really the life that is not one that I achieve myself, but one that will be given to me after death when the resurrected Christ takes me into his heavenly city? 
would that change anything about some of the angst and frustrations that I have today? I think it should. I think it should. I told you Becker, you know, as he's dying from terminal cancer, I, I do wonder if he felt like a lot of pressure because he wrote this book to kind of say, I, I need to die well and I need to show people, right, how to die well. Um, I think for the Christian believer, this kind of pressure to perform or right, to live up to a certain standard, um, to achieve something meaningful uh, in our lives, through our careers, through our families, I think what the one of the things that the resurrection does for us is it gives us the freedom to not have that pressure, to not construct our finality around what we do and achieve in our 40s and 50s. <laughs> and I tell you, I'm preaching this, but I'll be the first to tell you, that that's hard to sink in to my heart. And after we leave here today, I'm still going to feel that frustration <laughs> and saying, oh, my 40s, ah, my 40s, I need to be fruitful. I need to do something meaningful. But I wonder uh, if it's because, you know, the reality of death probably hasn't hit me yet. Um, I anticipate that it will. And when it does, I wonder if that's when my heart will really take the hope of the resurrection seriously. And sometimes that's what I mean. It takes the hard things to get to the better things, the greatest things. And sometimes we have to think about death and mortality, even though it's the most uncomfortable and sad and painful thing to think about, because that's not the end of the story. And to get to the hope, the hope, the real hope, the reality of the hope of the resurrection, what Jesus is going to do to us, what he does for us on the other side of death, I think it's just like too wonderful for our imaginations to even comprehend. But we should try to comprehend it as best as we can and look towards it as best as we can. Because mm, I don't know if actually the world is worse off than it used to be. My sense is the world has always been broken. Maybe we're just more aware of it. There's always been wars. There have been like much worse plagues. People have always died. Life expectancy used to be much lower, right? So relatively speaking in history, I don't think we have it that bad. <laughs> and even though we don't have it that bad, can't avoid death. We still go through pandemics. There's still a war going on, right? Uh, it's, it's always going to be that way. And the one thing we can't avoid, age. We're still going to age and get older, and our health is going to decline. And yet, in the midst of all those things, there is this great resurrection hope. I want to ask you to, to join me. And, you know, uh, the deepest longing of my heart's desire, it's kind of one of those things where I feel this frustration within me. And I know that my hope isn't in the right place. And I don't know. Part of the frustration is how do I get this hope? How do I make sense of this hope? How do I get it into my heart? And I don't have an answer other than we just, we have to be in prayer. We have to reflect. We have to meditate on the truths of God and ask God to make it real for us.
you know, we, we, I don't know, we live in so much fear sometimes. Fear that the time is passing away. Fear of missed opportunities. Fear of regret. Fear of making wrong choices in life. But then you think about the new heaven, and it's kind of like, at the end of the day, is any of that stuff going to really matter? At the end of the day, are we going to experience or achieve something that is greater than what God promises to give us? I think the answer is a resounding no. And I, I hope for me, I hope for many of us, that relieves some pressure on us to stop looking for our meaning and hope in this world and to be directed towards a new heaven. Let's just spend some time uh, in prayer and then um, I'll ask the worship team to maybe come up and play some uh, music and then just lead us. You can lead us in uh, some songs when you feel appropriate.